Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you and always so grateful to have you and so happy mid-October. And as I often do, let me go ahead and give you a little update of what is coming up on the show. For our inbox, we have a girl who's wondering, how do I date a guy who has been recently divorced? Are there certain things she has to keep in mind? What does that look like? Well, one of our counselors is going to weigh in. And then for our culture segment, how do you learn to date again after experiencing trauma from previous relationships, or even quite frankly, just trauma in general that is affecting your relationships. Well, two members of our Focus on the Family counseling team are going to join us to offer some hope and encouragement and really some practical steps uh, for making that happen. Okay, here we are for our roundtable, and we're going to have a conversation today around not feeling welcome at church. And this could be for a number of different reasons. We're going to ask our panel here, like, what are their reasons? Because I feel like we've all been in this spot at some point, and it could be, you know, seasons of life. It could be kind of the way the church <laughs> vibe was or whatever. But uh, welcome to Georgia, Cooper, and John. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks. Hey, Lisa. All right, so we're going to jump into this because, uh, first of all, let's just start talking about, like, have talk about your church experiences now, especially in young adulthood, because, you know, we're not going to talk about you as a kid because no <laughs> kids, I mean, kids just have to run around and do whatever at church, okay? But, but then it gets awkward, you know? You're in young adulthood, you're no longer, you know, part of the youth group in school, you're no longer, now you're just on your own, and it's like, I need to find a way to fit in, and so how has your experience been in that space. Georgia, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I think moving here to Colorado, it's been significantly better than my time when I was in Oklahoma, um, just because a lot of people were church hopping. So I didn't feel alone in that. And so as I was finding where I wanted to land, as far as churches go, there was just a lot of people in the same boat. So didn't mm-hmm. feel lonely as I was asking questions or if I was checking out doctrine at different churches. I will say that when I was in Oklahoma, it was it was pretty tough and that uh, there wasn't really a space at my home church, which is where I was raised. There wasn't a space for young adults until the second semester of my senior year. Mm-hmm. And that space was specifically for college ministry. Mm-hmm. And then there wasn't anything for young adults, period. It was just college and then young marrieds. And I was like, well, I'm about to be neither of those. So that was (laughs) really tough right after I graduated. Well, and that can be hard because it's like you grew up in that church. So it seems people kind of can make you feel like traitorous if you're like, well, I actually need to go find a different scene. Yeah. Because it's like, this is your home church. What are you doing? I did. I left. Yeah. And I came here (laughs) to Colorado. (laughs) Guess you just put that out there. Okay. She just left you guys. Whatever. (laughs) That was that. John, how about you? So I graduated college in 2017, and since then, I've been very, very involved in pretty much any congregation I've been a part of. In college, I church-topped a good bit, to be honest. I would there, there was one congregation that I did attend pretty regularly, but I really didn't get that involved. But after I graduated college, it was probably just a few months after that, I actually was part of a multi-site campus type church and they were launching a campus in my area. I was just super involved with that. Everybody was because we were working really hard to launch the campus. And then I got the focus job out here in Colorado Springs. 
And it was probably about two or three months after I moved out here that I actually joined the welcome team. Mm. And now I'm currently one of the team leads at my church at New Life Downtown, which we've had a few staff members here on the show uh, from downtown. But so I've tried to be, I've had to make myself as an introvert, be very intentional about getting as involved as I can. Mm -hmm. That's great. Cooper? Yeah. So uh, I'm from Colorado and been raised here my whole life. And went to the same, I've been at the same church for like seven, eight years now. And so, um, but part of it is there's not a huge young adult population in the church and it's, it's a very family oriented churches and like young, young families and stuff like that. And so getting that community, at least young adult community has been a little harder um, within my church directly, but seeking outside of that, I found some groups that have been really, really, really welcoming, actually, and really good for believers, non-believers, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you guys, because I would say my church, I've I've gone to my current church for quite a while now, but it is a large church, and I can easily see how I've had to be very intentional, and I serve in a number of different ways at church, which makes it feel less isolating and stuff, because I can kind of see my people and, and whatnot. But I feel like it's very easy to get caught up in the chit chat churn of just, unless you feel like you can really plug into a conversation, it can get awkward really fast, just Mm -hmm. standing out in the lobby and being like, I guess I'll just ask this girl about her week because, you know, what what else are we (laughs) going to talk about? You know, and you just get into the same surfacey cycle, I think, Mm -hmm. that can come back and forth. Now, what would you guys say? I mean, that that's not like unwelcoming, but it is awkward. But what would you guys say are some specific things that you guys feel can give off a vibe of being unwelcoming or things that you have experienced in the past or know of people who've experienced them? So my experience growing up in the South is that most of the churches there, we talk about how there's a church on every street corner in the mm-hmm. South. It's absolutely the truth. Mm-hmm. But most of the churches I attended were very welcoming. But there were a couple that I was a part of where even though we they were super welcoming and we made a lot of friends at the congregation, there was almost as if you had to put up a front of, oh, it's time to put on my happy face. Mm-hmm. So... For whatever reason, some of the traditional churches that I visited were more that way, some less way. For the most part, I wouldn't say I had a bad welcoming experience, but it was more of, oh, I'm at church. I got to put on my happy face and can't talk about real life type of feeling. So I I think one of the things I really appreciate about the church that I'm at now and some of the ones I've attended recently is there is that really that openness to be real. And hey, if you're struggling today, feel free to cry during worship or please come down and talk to members of our prayer team after service today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I would say that there's always there always needs to be that effort made to welcome in other guests. And like, I think if you think about maybe older churches or things like that, that have been stable for year decades, you know, of like same congregational members and stuff, there's less of that inclination to reach out to newer people or things like that. And that may, may not always be true, but there's there's definitely that that can uh, take place. Yeah, it can feel kind of clickish. I feel, yeah. When I was at my old church, and I'm not trying to just bash on it because it, it really <laughs> wasn't a bad place, but um, I did have a friend leave at the end of my senior year of high school because he came out and it just was not um, just was not handled well and was not handled in a godly manner. And so I think right after that, I just really felt uncomfortable at church, felt that I wasn't welcome because I had been a close friend of his and I'm still a close friend of his to this day. And so just felt 
like I wasn't welcome to be there because um, because I loved him and because I cared for him. Um, and nobody was willing to talk about the severity of what that looks like when a member walks away. And I mean, truly walks away, not just like switches to a different church, but like walks away from the faith and from Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, I think that made it feel like it was an unwelcome atmosphere. And so I struggled with that. And that was kind of a church hurt of mine um, for a couple of years. And then I went back to that church after I kind of wrestled with that. But yeah, there was a time where I just felt like I wasn't welcome because people knew how I, how much I cared for that friend. And it Mm -hmm. didn't feel like that sympathy that I had for my friend was, was welcome. Yeah. Two things that come to mind for me, and they're kind of different ends of the spectrum in a way, but you know, one of them being super surfacy. I've noticed before when I've walked into certain churches, especially if they are a very formal vibe, which is funny because I grew up like when I was small, it was kind of like we as girls had to wear dresses to church. Like Mm -hmm. my mom was like, if it's like the middle of winter, we're going to let you wear pants. Or then we were part of this church plant for a while that literally didn't have carpet or heating. So then it was like, now the Lord will ordain that you can wear pants to church. So apparently my mom (laughs) just had certain standards. But it's so weird because now that's not at all what I do. But I have been in churches before. I remember I was visiting, and I know John thinks I just diss the South all the time, but it was a Southern church. (laughs) But I happened to be there on Mother's Day. So the game was just upped altogether. Mm -hmm. And I was on vacation and I came in, let's be honest, they were nice cropped pants, (laughs) but it was not Mother's Day. I mean, this was women with pastel suits and hats Mm -hmm. and gloves Mm -hmm. on in the church. And I just felt like, did I step back in time? Did I feel, I just felt like it was a super kind of patronizing situation of like, oh, please come street person and let us talk to you about, (laughs) you know, it was just, and it was probably like, you know, all me as, as well. But the other thing that I felt was super unwelcoming that I experienced one time in a church was, um, not in the South this time, John, was um, <laughs> when the pastor, like from the pulpit, was super, like getting super denominational. So all of a sudden it was kind of dissing like people of other denominations mm-hmm. in an illustration he was using. And I was like, well, let's talk about how we're the body. And mm-hmm. so that was just weird. I just felt like there was a dividing line in that that became became kind of weird. Um, what would you guys say the converse of that? Like, how have you felt especially welcomed in a church experience? Um, you know, and and really, I mean, kind of even going to that point of like, really, I want to get to how can we be part of the solution? But what have you seen that really works? At least at the church that I go to now, which is Harvest Downtown, the first day I was there, the head pastor came and spoke to me and asked mm. me my name and asked me who invited me there and that kind of thing. And so from that point That's on, great. I felt like I was welcome there. And it is a bit of a smaller church, so people do come up and ask your name. But it wasn't even just that. It was that, you know, as I continued to go there, they asked me, what are my strengths? What are my gifts? And they started to spur me on to get involved in church and um you know, go ahead and become a member and all these things. And so that was just really exciting that it wasn't just a, oh, like I met you one time. It was that every time I came, they knew my name. They kept asking me about, you know, why I came back. And then as I became a member, they just continued to encourage me to get involved and be a part of the body. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Sometimes it does just start with a conversation and feeling seen and feeling known and Mm -hmm. cared about. That's great. 
Absolutely. Uh, for me, uh, the church I go to now was a church plant off the other church, and it's kind of sister churches, so I kind of considered the same thing a little bit. So I wasn't directly involved with the plant, but I started attending regularly right after it and, and serving on the worship team for them. And that built pretty tight community there. But one thing that's always emphasized is like, you know, the greeting of new new people and things like that. And like after worship, the worship leader's like, I'm going to go talk to the, these people and stuff. You know, I'll be back to help clean up sound and stuff like that. And so there's always that push for, you know, engaging with the new people. And on top of that, um, the uh, young adult group I attend, they we make a huge emphasis on like names, being able to remember someone's name when they come back. It's like, oh, you remembered me even like, you know, weeks, months later. Yep. And that's, that's just one way to be seen, you know. Mm-hmm. That's good. Absolutely. And for me, I remember a couple of different times where we visited churches that were out of town, say we were on vacation. And one of the things I always appreciated was how they would tell you during the service, hey, if you're a first time guest, stop by the tent outside or stop by this table and we'll get your information and we'd be happy to pray for you. And you'd go out to the lobby and then all of a sudden, hey, it was easy to spot where the first timers need to go. And I will always remember times where we would go there and they were just so welcoming. It was easy to chat mm-hmm. with people who were on staff. I'm thinking of one church I attended in Kentucky and one church in North Carolina that was that way. And it was just so neat to be able to connect with other believers who were genuinely welcoming. And it always goes a long way too. if you're a first time guest, if the church volunteers will say, is there any way we can pray for you mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. pray for you right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. That made me feel and made my family feel so welcomed when churches would do that for us. Yeah. It's interesting. A couple of you, you know, kind of started to alluding to this of just making that person feel seen. And I think for me, when I was part of a a pretty not huge young adults group at church, but, you know, good size, I remember I was on the leadership team for a while. And I always said, if we can, when we have visitors, because we would often like go out to lunch afterwards. Mm-hmm. I was always like, someone invite them to lunch and make them, you know, make sure that they know they're included and go. Because then if you do lunch and you've talked to someone for a couple hours, yeah. it's a lot harder to just ghost, you know, this group and <laughs> mm-hmm, be like, sure. anyway, I'm just going to go on the fade and not talk to you. Because now we've talked to you for two hours and we know pretty much a lot about you. So mm-hmm. I always think that kind of going that next step is is really helpful as well. All right. Well, speaking of next step, let's talk about the small group, because, you know, it's one thing to just (laughs) drift in and out and sit in a service and whatever and smile at people and feel friendly and feel like people are friendly. But now you've actually got to go deeper and you've got to do something that's going to be some level of commitment. How do we make small groups welcoming and how do we navigate that experience, maybe as people who have been burned in the past? Something that has really helped me has been if people are willing to invite me to their own home Mm -hmm. versus, and and I'm not dissing on this at all, sometimes in a public setting, say a meeting room, it is great. And sometimes the, say the group is larger, maybe you need that extra living space. Mm -hmm. That can be really good, but it's especially kind of personal if they're willing to invite you to their own living space and they're willing to cook for you. The meal group I'm a part of now, we meet about twice a month and it's always at two different people's homes. It's Mm. two married couples that will host us at one of their houses. And it, that just, it's it's a lot easier to be yourself when you're at your house Mm -hmm. and just, it's, 
honestly a little more intimate from a friendship standpoint when you're just sitting around the table eating a meal together and you're just being yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier to put up a front, I think, if you're in public versus if you're at your house. Yeah, that's good. Uh, For me, with small groups and everything, there's um, the one I currently attend, there's a huge emphasis on like engaging outside of the group. Um, Like John was saying, go get coffee, go get coffee, talk, get to know each other, things like that. There's no, you know, there's not anything weird as far as gender relationships go or whatever. It's like anyone can ask anyone uh, and it's a big part of the culture of the group and things like that. And also uh, once a month we get together and we bake things together, mm. just like the driving the community, getting to know people mm-hmm. and creating those relationships where you can have deeper conversations with people. I need to go to that small group. That sounds <laughs> I know, I'm like, like baked good. <laughs> <Take it, yeah. laughs> sounds, sounds good to great. me. <laughs> yeah, I think being an inviter is a big part of it. If you are already in a small group or a meal group, being you know an advocate for inviting new people but i think if we're specifically talking to oh i'm new to a church or i don't feel welcome and you're joining a small group i think having an exit buddy is always nice like always having a friend that you can be with just because i feel like it's even more intimidating for you to show up alone so i think setting yourself up for success by having someone to be there with you that you can kind of look at and be like okay like how are we doing and you know just to encourage you to talk to other people because i think that's the biggest thing is that a lot of times we can show up to a space and be like, no one likes me. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it's in your head. And I'm not not saying that people aren't being unwelcoming, but I do feel like there's a lot of times where if you show up in a space and you're alone, it feels like everyone's against you. But really, that's just insecurities talking. So I feel like having a buddy to go to a new small group is always helpful. So then you're not alone in that. Yeah. I also feel like leading a small group, it's really helpful if you're willing to do something that's even like a touch point throughout the week. And I know mm-hmm. some people do, you know, whether it's Group Me or Marco Polo, or they just kind of have this group. And it, it's so neat to be new to a group and have someone just reach out to you during the week, like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, how's your Tuesday going? Or what, you know, or, you know, you want to do coffee at some point, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be great to get to know you a little better. And it's just kind of like, yeah, you're not just waiting. You're not being lazy about like, oh, yeah, I'll see him at small group or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, yeah, there's there's uh, more about you that I would like to get to know, which I think is cool. Mm. All right. Well, let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room, which <laughs> is being single at church. <laughs> whoop, whoop. I love that I just said being single like it's a tagline or something. Okay. <laughs> All of us at this table are single, y'all. So those of you listening, just FYI, (laughs) if you want to hit us up, I'm just saying. But (laughs) ads, Uh, advertising. I'm doing it on behalf of all of you. Here we go. Let's go. No, we're ready. We're ready. Um, We're curing loneliness in 28 minutes. No, um, let's talk about this because I think that some bad church experiences have come from not feeling seen as maybe an unmarried person or part of a family unit or you're away from your family of origin or whatever and it just can be weird or you get weird questions or you feel like people think your life is so exciting because you're single that you don't need to be invited to anything like let's be honest sometimes that happens Um, but how have you guys experienced this and how have you overcome it yeah I will say again not to go back to my other church but that was a huge that was a huge thing is that they didn't have anything for young adults but then they also didn't have anything for single mm-hmm. young adults and so i think what 
kind of got me over that hump of feeling like I was less than in the church was going to my church that I'm at now because we do intergenerational small groups. And so it isn't where it's divided where, okay, only the singles can meet together because only they can learn and talk about God together or only marrieds are together. It's a, a huge group of people in all different walks of life who are all walking with Jesus. And I think that has been super beneficial to me because it means that I can learn from a married person and a married person can learn from me. And um, I can learn from people who have kids and people with kids can learn something from me. And I think that's been really encouraging and just has um, really shown me that the Lord works in each and every one of us. And um, it looks different and I may not be married right now or I might not be married ever. I don't know. But um that there's still value and that the Lord is still using me. Yeah, that's great. I love that intergenerational component because I'm in a Sunday school community now that's intergenerational. And it's great because it's like, even the empty nesters in my group, it's like I have so much in common with them because they're not raising kids. They Mm -hmm. have a lot more time. And it's like, in fact, just last week, um, one of the couples invited me and a couple other people over for lunch after church. And I was like, that's so cool Mm because now I get to be in the sphere of people who are different than I am. So I appreciated that. My pastor, Jason, did this really well a couple months ago. Uh, Shout out to Jason. Um, He's awesome. But I remember he actually has done this more than once, and I was privileged to go to one of these sessions where he actually reached out to some single people at the church who had been there for quite a while and just kind of set up a meal and discussion time and just straight up asked us questions along the lines of, how do you feel seen right now? What are some ways that we can better integrate you in the church? What are some ways that maybe we could change some things up? What are things we're doing well? And it was just really inviting. Mm -hmm. I I remember so many of us by the end of that session told him, honestly, just the fact that you're doing this is going a super, super long way Mm -hmm. because this is kind of rare that a senior pastor of a congregation would be willing to go this far. But it really meant a lot to us that he was willing to just sit down and talk and hear us out. Mm -hmm. That's neat. This actually reminded me of like a pretty funny story. Um, So the context is like my church was a church plant from another one. I attend it by myself for the most part. My family still goes to that other church prior to this. And so I'm like the one single guy, young adult (laughs) guy at church. And um, I remember one week I brought a friend from a young adult group who she like hadn't been consistent at a church or stuff like that. And I just brought her with me to check it out. And like, we're getting coffee or something and like the worship leader comes up to me and she's like, hi, what's your name? Is this your girlfriend? I'm like, nope. (laughs) Just immediately. And I was like, nope, this is not my girlfriend. And so I don't know if there is, you know, sort of that pressure there of we'll get married or anything, but there, there has been a little bit. Yes. Just that the pressure. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, a, it's there always is. looming in the sanctuary. <laughs> Whenever I'm around, it, it, it just haunts me. But um, <laughs> it is because if you're within 20 feet of any single young woman, you must be dating her. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, They're so like, I see something that's there. Precious. Yeah, <laughs> let's pray about it. So, yeah. oh, that's good. Well, you guys, hopefully, I mean, this has been a fun conversation. Hopefully, we can give everyone some kind of some encouragement and at least maybe a few ideas for going after a sense of belonging, being a person who, you know, Georgia said it is going to be an inviter. Don't wait for people to 
invite you or welcome you. And quite frankly, on the single thing, sometimes we just have to like own it and be the person who's going to lead with that conversation of like, for yeah, sure. you know, I'm I, I'm not intentionally weird just because I'm single. I might be weird for other reasons, but you know, hopefully we can all just kind of get might to be quirky for other reasons, get to but... know one another and kind of move uh, move into that space and be truly the body of Christ. And we mm-hmm. can be encouraged in that. So thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank Thanks you. Thanks, Lisa. Lisa. Well, folks, we're here for this week's culture segment. And man, it is always so great when we have culture segments where we have people, I mean, we almost always on the culture have people who are experts in various areas, whether they are authors, we often have theologians, pastors, sometimes artists and other newsmakers. And it's really fun when we can bring members of our own counseling team in to speak to an issue. And as we were talking here at the Boundless team about a great topic to discuss, we thought, what about the subject of dating after trauma? And so, you know, we've talked a lot about trauma in various contexts here at the Boundless Show. And obviously, some of you listeners are no strangers to it. And you've walked through some rough roads in various um, aspects of life, for sure. And so we want to bring that kind of a conversation around dating with that to bear. And so I want to introduce uh, both of our counselors. We have Carrie Ajo and Angel Perez. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thank Lisa. you. Yay. Um, both of you are, you basically are both counselors. I know, um, Angel, you're new to the Boundless Show, um, but you specialize in marital and premarital counseling, as well as behavioral issues and parenting in particular. And uh, Carrie, you've been a guest on our show mm-hmm. a number of different times. And I know we bring, we're like, I feel like the last time Carrie was on, I think we were talking about porn or something. <laughs> so it's like, Carrie's like, are you ever going to invite me down for something like <laughs> a little more chill? But yeah, probably not, you know, so just get ready for it. So, well, it's so great. Um, that you guys are willing to lend your expertise to this and just your hearts around this issue. And so, um, man, we have questions for you. So let's, uh, let's jump in on that front. So, all right, first of all, let's get some general background on this. What would you guys say? I mean, because you're you currently counsel, so you are in practice. How have you counseled folks around the subject of traumatic relationships in particular? 
Well, one of the things that we really kind of talk about around trauma is what we do in trauma. We tend to either respond with a fight, flight, or a freeze response. What we don't often think about is we don't only respond in the traumatic moment with those kinds of responses, but these responses play out over the course of our lives. So I think about when I was hit by a drunk driver uh, when I was in California and I had friends in the car with me and uh, we were coming down a mountain road. I didn't know he was drunk at the time, but I could tell he was about to hit me mm-hmm. and there was no guardrail. Mm-hmm. And I experienced all three of those within a very short amount of time. Um, you know, the fight response coming out after the fact, I wanted to go punch his face, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for, uh, and then there's that frozen moment where you're hit and you're, you know, I think people who have had that experience, you have several seconds, if not minutes, where you're just frozen in fear. Um, but again, what we don't tend to think about is that um, over the course of our lives, we might still respond that way, but it won't look like aggression and running away. It'll kind of start to look like uh, anger or coldness um, or coolness and those kinds of things. In the context of what we're talking about today, those can really play out over the course of the relationship. Yeah. So you're saying you could come into, a a person could come into your office for a counseling session and think they're going to talk about something totally different and you're recognizing it as, oh, actually this might be a trauma response from either a distant past thing or maybe a recent past thing or yeah most most people don't realize that they are exhibiting trauma responses Mm. um so during the initial stages of counseling in my case i like to teach clients that the mind and the body goes into protective mode Mm -hmm. right and sometimes defensive mode Mm -hmm. as well so it's like putting on a pair of glasses you tend to see your world through the lenses of trauma. So one of the first questions I encourage people to ask themselves is how has trauma influenced my view of the world, Mm -hmm. myself, God, and relationships. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's um, let's back it up a little bit because I want to make sure we're all on that we level the playing field and everyone understands where we're going with this. Because I think a lot of times in our culture, especially with social media or just in common conversations or jargon, we bandy about terms, whether it's abuse, whether it's the term toxic, trauma, whatever. Everyone just has some kind of random usage of it. So give us a better, give us an, an idea, even if it's a clinical one, of what are we actually talking about when we're talking about trauma as it relates to relationships. Yeah. Broadly speaking, trauma is any experience that stunts your maturity development Mm -hmm. and functioning, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's spiritual, emotional, or physical. Wow. Okay. Anything to add to that, Carrie? No, I knew that you had already addressed that when we (laughs) talked earlier, so I was going to let you define that. But yes, it could be anything that has been traumatizing, physical, emotional, spiritual, even environmental. And okay. in, in, in our field, we oftentimes uh, talk about big T trauma and little T mm-hmm. trauma, mm-hmm. Uh, right? Big T trauma could be sexual assault, rape, combat, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. serious car accidents, anything life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, little T trauma um, could be defined as non-life-threatening injuries, emotional manipulation, verbal abuse. Uh, but regardless, whether it's big T or little T, both have the same internal effect. 
Yeah. Uh, they can prompt you into that fight, flight, or freeze. Okay. So let's take that into a dating context because I think we can have big T's and little T's right. there. I mean, you can straight up have sexual assault and rape and you can have a very... Um, uh, very much whether it's any level of abuse within an abusive relationship or like you said you could just have something that's off you could be <laughs> you could be experiencing something that's manipulative or something or you're just the um, you are the beholder of or the recipient of someone else's maybe brokenness and that comes into play in your relationship and how you how you have to manifest that or, or respond to it or whatever so um, as we kind of talk about that what what would you say if you know what would be your advice to someone related to maybe first steps in recognizing like okay maybe i'm in a relationship where i i'm seeing this or maybe they realize that they were in one and as a result they haven't been dating they put a pause on stuff and they didn't really even understand why what would you say are some of the awareness points of that well, first of all, I think that there needs to be some intentionality around your healing before you go into a relationship, Angel, and I kind of talked about that mm. a little bit before the show. Additionally, it's within the context of a relationship that your trauma triggers will tend to come out. Mm -hmm. So I think you're, there's awareness of both. Um, I think something to remember, you know, God designed us and created us for connection, and He created us for relationship. But when we experience trauma, you know, our innate need for connection, that can be really disrupted. And as a result, maintaining a relationship with someone else can actually become really difficult. And so, you know, on the one hand, you want that relationship, you want that connectedness. On the other hand, you find yourself being extremely fearful of the vulnerability because you're always wondering, how is this going to turn out? Mm -hmm. How is this going to go for me? It's almost like you're scanning that person all of the time, almost looking for that shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you know, relational trauma cannot be healed in isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, it can only be healed through relational significance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, which is interesting because sometimes I feel people do almost the opposite of that of they're like, well, I was in a traumatic relationship. And then all of a sudden you find them repeating the same things. They go to another bad relationship or they have the same experience. Right. I remember interviewing someone on the show years ago who talked about only dating alcoholics because that was all she'd ever, her own dad was an alcoholic. And having experienced that, she didn't even recognize that as trauma in her own life of the mm -hmm. way she experienced the men in her life. And I think that became really, really difficult for her. So it's almost like, a wake-up call that has to happen. I mean, is there is there a way to figure <laughs> figure out, like, do I need my eyes open to maybe a relationship pattern that I have in my life? I think that, um, well, let's say that this is within the context of a safe relationship. You don't necessarily know that it's a safe relationship yet. I think one thing that's important, um, I think you have to be mindful of where and when you're vulnerable with the person that you're dating. Um, but let's say that you're in a committed relationship, um, things are going well, and you decide to disclose some of your past trauma. I think there has to be some openness in your relationship around that. Mm -hmm. um, because again, it's through the context of the relationships that some of that trauma is going to come out. So let's say you're the person who has not experienced trauma. You're the sort of safe person in the relationship. There needs to be some safety around that person being able to reflect back to you, hey, I just experienced 
a, a lot of anger that felt really irrational. Mm-hmm. Or I just saw you um, just get go completely cold and numb when we heard that siren pass, mm-hmm. you know. And then and then I felt like you kind of lashed out at me after that. There has to be kind of some openness, and and for the person who is the safe person, you know, that can feel like, oh my gosh, you're you know you're falsely accusing me. I had nothing to do with this this scenario. You know, but have some grace and sensitivity also maybe in that situation and kind of be able to reflect back because the person who's been traumatized may have no idea, really, truly may have no idea that they are not actually responding to the person in front of them. They're responding to an internal stimuli that they are completely subconscious yeah. in their subconscious. Sure. And uh, that's really good. And just to expand on that, I love the the intentionality on healing first. Mm-hmm. I think that's important because at the end of the day, if you start dating prematurely, um, mm-hmm. you may end up hurting rather than honoring. Mm-hmm. And this brings me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's important to just keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. There's three questions that I encourage individuals to ask during the initial stages of, of counseling. One is, where am I? Mm-hmm. Um, where am I in my relationship with God? Where am I emotionally? Where am I relationally? What's my support system looking like? Number two, um, what am I currently carrying? Am I carrying guilt, shame, fear, mistrust, anxiety? And thirdly, what am I looking for in this relationship? Uh, am I seeking companionship, comfort, relief from the trauma. So I think it's important to uh, really do that self-assessment as Mm. well. So what, I mean, I I see like this would be a helpful question, maybe not only for the person who's experienced trauma, but maybe for the person who is also in that relationship with the person about like, how do you tell the difference? Like there could easily be coping mechanisms maybe that manifest themselves that you're like, like the person, you know, the person who's dating someone who's experienced trauma, that probably the worst thing you can do is be like, well, clearly we're dealing with some trauma here. So you need to go get yourself fixed and get, you know, clean yourself up (laughs) and get healthy. And then I can maybe date you. But at the same time, you want to be aware of the right things and you want to be able to have a healthy conversation because I feel like there could be things that we prop up. Um, how, how can we recognize those? How can we be aware of those things and actually have a supportive conversation around that? I think that's an excellent question. And I think it's a difficult question. Um, and I don't know that there is a one size fits all answer. Um, I was sharing with Angel, you know, just a personal story. Um, my husband was married, you know, prior to us being married, and his uh, former wife was faithful and unfaithful a number of times in that marriage. And it kind of was around this area of travel, where if she was out of town, she wasn't really where she said she was going and wasn't who she said she was with. If my husband was out of town, she was kind of opportunistic then too. So I kind of knew that there was this kind of traumatic area. I assumed there was a traumatic area around travel. Anytime that I was um, going to be out of town, I always tried to stay ahead of that, mm-hmm. even sending pictures of who I was with, you know, just to stay ahead of it. He never asked me to do that. Well, <clears throat> after we got married, we were on a trip to um, California. We lovingly refer to it as the trip from hell now. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband developed some idea on that trip that the whole reason I had planned this family vacation was that I was going to hook up with somebody mm-hmm. um, in California that I knew prior and I was going to leave him. Mm-hmm. Now, he's never done that before or since, but it was 
weeks after we came back from that trip that we really had to talk through exactly this issue. What was it about that trip? Because it wasn't rational. And I think that's one of the indicators. That's kind of an over-the-top example. But it is one of the indicators. Does this feel really irrational? Does the emotion match the situation? Is it a really over-the-top response? I think that's sort of a strong indicator that this is probably a trigger or a trauma response that it may not even match the situation at all. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, you know, in my case, I come from a, a very uh, violent uh, household. I suffered domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, witnessed a lot of physical abuse and verbal abuse. Um, but, you know, I just pushed it under the rug and went on with my life until I met my wife and I started dating um, my wife. And then I started noticing that every time we would get into an argument or a conflict or she would raise her voice, I would flee. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had that flight response um, until she really pointed out, you know, have you ever noticed this pattern in you. Um, and that's when it dawned on me. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, no, mm-hmm. but thank you. So she was very gracious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very blessed because she was very gracious and she um, hold me accountable. She helped me accountable with both grace mm-hmm. and truth, mm-hmm. right? A grace talks about empathy and embracing and understanding, but truth also talks about boundaries and reality, mm-hmm. right? And the truth with trauma is that perceptions uh, don't always match reality. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So what would you say, I mean, I could easily see someone listening here who's like, well, it's okay, I'm going to solve this by just not getting close to anyone. I mean, this is how <laughs> I'm just going to not date anymore, or I'm going to choose to not get married, or I'm not going to let anyone close enough to me so that they can hurt me. How can someone change their thinking in that? You know, you talking, Angel, about grace and truth and balancing that and taking reality and realizing that God has, you know, God loves us through people in many different ways. And so how do we learn to trust again in that process? One of the articles that I read as I was kind of preparing for this, I love the way that they that they kind of said this, that what ends up happening is you sort of end up developing a dislike and a hate of criticism towards yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's to the traumatic traumatic experience and unlearning them is going to take time. But I love the way they said, but that, that coping mechanism is not going to help and protect you anymore mm-hmm. in any context, in any relationship. Um, it also doesn't align with God's view of you. This isn't just about how you relate to people in your world. This is how you see God, your father. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can have a dramatic impact on your faith. Mm-hmm. I kind of think about boundaries, right? Um, Usually when we think about boundaries or when people hear the word boundaries, um, they think about it in terms of a guard in a prison, right? Saying like, no one comes in, no one gets out, Mm -hmm. right? But healthy boundaries, it's more um, like a guard in a museum, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're welcome to come in, you're welcome to see some of the exhibits, right? But there are some areas that are off limits for now because they are under construction. Mm-hmm. So um, just keeping that perspective of 
staying in the posture of humility and curiosity Mm -hmm. as you move forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of a two-pronged question here about talking about this. One, I'd be curious to know for the person who's like, okay, clearly this is me. I would love to get some help. How do they even, if they go to a therapist, if they go to get help, what what's the best way of seeding this conversation? Of being, you know, not wasting a lot of time beating around the bush, but just saying, here's what I think might be the issue. Like, what are the words that they should use to kind of get started in helping a counselor understand where they're coming from? And then the second part of this uh, question, you guys can tag team it or however you want to do it, is then when they start dating again, how do they start having that conversation without being, I mean, again, Angel, to your point about boundaries, like, you know, hi, it's our first coffee date. Let me tell you about mm-hmm, every traumatic correct. experience I've walked through. And now, congrats, you're my next date, you know? So <laughs> yeah, that's that's really awkward. But about, about just having, speaking the truth in this situation, both when you're getting help from a counselor and then when you start dating again. Yeah. Um, during the initial stages of counseling, um, report is important mm-hmm. and trust mm-hmm. is important, right? So um, usually when people um, contact me for the first time, Obviously, they don't disclose a lot of information, understandably so. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are trained uh, and we are keenly aware of how difficult and how intimidating Mm -hmm. counseling could be. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I want to say is don't feel pressured to disclose everything on the first session. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no pressure, actually, Mm -hmm. right? So my job as a therapist is to promote a safe environment Okay, and build that trust, mm-hmm. right? Be that solid object in front of them um, that could bring objectivity and truth, right? But um, you will disclose and you will find the proper way of disclosing as the relationship, that therapeutic alliance mm-hmm. builds up. Okay, that's good. Yeah. I knew you would do a great job with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carrie, then you can talk about talking to a future date. What does it look like to have the conversation? When do you start telling about this? And in what context? Maybe even uh, maybe even before the future date, you might want to try out some of this in the context of other relationships, mm-hmm. uh, maybe friendships, maybe mm-hmm. a community group, you know, um, getting involved in a healthy church and a healthy community first and kind of trying that out. I think those relationships can be a little less intense um, to be able to try that out. And then once you're in the relationship, I think, um, for one, um, again, you're looking for safety in that other person. Now, your perception of safety may be a little skewed from your you know, your past, but looking for data, looking for actual facts about that person, not necessarily always what you're feeling about them. Um, but I would say, you know, a good couple of months into it, um, you know, really kind of, and you may not even need to tell the whole story. Um, you may not even feel comfortable or safe telling the whole story. I mean, like, again, going back to even my experience within my own marriage, things came out well into the marriage um, that we were really, you know, really having to talk through and work through because, again, they were coming out within the context of the relationship. So, you know, maybe kind of sharing enough. And again, back to the point of the person who was not traumatized, you know, if you're dating someone who has that experience, you take a little bit of initiative yourself to kind of study a little bit about that fight, flight, freeze response. Also for both of you to know your relationship is not going to heal the trauma. And for the person who's not traumatized, you're not the one responsible for healing the trauma. That's somebody outside of you. Mm -hmm. Whenever I work with 
um, clients that are struggling with anxiety. Um, I talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy, right? And one of the things that I tell my clients is um, you have to be exposed to that which you're afraid of because mm. that's the only road towards healing. I mean, there's really no shortcut, right? So um, what I often tell them is, um, make it as predictable as possible. Um, a person who has suffered trauma, if the only thing you've known in your entire life is abuse, anything that resembles love, care, and truth seems foreign mm. and weird and strange, mm. you know? So I love the idea of being exposed to support groups or youth groups or church groups, whatever, um, and make it as predictable as possible and take baby steps. Okay, I'm going to join a group this week for half an hour, mm-hmm. you know, just to be exposed to healthy, meaningful relationships. So that tends to be... Um, something effective, uh, just being exposed gradually mm-hmm. to healthy spaces and healthy environments. Yeah, so good and so encouraging. Well, you guys, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I would love to encourage you, the listener, um, we actually have a book titled From Trauma to Transformation, A Path to Healing and Growth, available this week from Boundless um, for a gift of any amount to us here at Boundless. And so this might be something that you're like, Maybe I need to check this out. Maybe I need to find out. You know, I need to have a few conversations around this. And so you just go to boundless.org, search for 819 this week's episode. Uh, You'll see the book cover there. You can just click on it. You give a gift to Boundless. We want to send you a copy of this book as our thank you to you. And, you know, it might just be the catalyst that you need to kind of say, like, yeah, I want to start looking at some of this. So um, also, I want to make you aware of our counseling uh, opportunity here at Focus on the Family for a consultation, a complimentary consultation. You know that we talk about this a lot, Um, these fantastic counselors that we're talking to here. If you go to boundless.org, slash counseling, or you can call 1-800, the letter A and the word family, 1-800-A-FAMILY. And uh, you will have the opportunity to uh, speak with one of our counselors briefly and even get a local referral right where you are. And that might be, this is going to be a vetted person that just might be that person that can uh, you can start talking to for some continued care. So again, Angel and Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to open up our inbox and answer this week's question for you. And Carrie Ajo is back here in the studio, one of our counselors. Carrie, good to see you. Thanks, Lisa. 
Okay, um, a dating question for you from someone who wants to know about dating someone divorced. So our listener asks, how do I approach dating a guy that was divorced within the last two years? In the times we've talked, he seems very involved in community groups and in the church, but I'm a little wary because I don't know why he divorced. And then she also tags on, also, how how do I handle not comparing myself to his Mm ex-wife? So two Mm -hmm. questions there in one uh, to answer this time. So... I love the question. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I've shared it on the podcast before that I too dated and married someone who had been divorced before. So anytime you get a question like this, I'm happy to answer (laughs) and talk about it. Um, I think, you know, none of us probably um, set out to date and marry someone who's been divorced. Mm -hmm. Uh, It sort of kind of happens to us. I mean, we, we meet someone, we fall in love and circumstantially they've been married before. And then we have to kind of do this check in our own heart. How does that land with me? How do I really feel about that? I think, you know, again, with the rise of divorce rates in our country, and the longer you're single, there is a higher probability that that, you know, will be a scenario of someone that you marry. So um, I think one, the first thing I really kind of thought about is don't rule them out because they've been divorced. That in and of itself isn't a reason not to date them. Thought number two might be a reason not to date them. Um, The circumstances are important, and I think the listener is good to be thinking about that. Um, Even more important than the circumstances themselves is how does that person describe God in their story? Is it a redemption story? Um, Whether, I'm assuming it's a female, um, that whether or not he was at fault in the divorce or she was at fault in the divorce, um, how did God work out that story as one from brokenness to one of redemption. I think that's kind of an important important conversation to have and it may not come out, you know, really early on in the in in the dating relationship, but again, I wouldn't rule the person out necessarily because of that. I think there's a lot you need to know about their story and I think the person who's been divorced would benefit from being prepared to share that part of his story as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I I know at my church, I think they've done it where in premarital, if it is a divorce situation, sometimes they've even gone to the ex-husband or wife and gotten, you know, just said like, hey, we want to make sure we know this story and that we get it objectively because a lot of people, I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of situations in the church where someone might be the offending party or you know often it's both on some level but but they've just like left the church and tried to start some new story or new Mm -hmm. identity and you don't really know what happened and it could be a one-sided tale and so I think that idea is wise of just getting a good comprehensive picture of that and how that person responded right and the facts the facts are part of the story. What you're really looking for is a heart posture and and humility. You know, with my husband, um, his wife had had um, affairs and I knew that, but what I was looking for in my husband is are you are you bitter? Are you angry? You know, are you speaking uh, hatefully about that person. I mean, even if they're necessarily, you know, ultimately responsible for the divorce, mm-hmm. you know, what's your heart posture in that? I have found even in my own life that God uses my antagonists or my enemies to grow things in my heart mm-hmm. and grow things in my life. Mm-hmm. And so even if that's the person's story, the other person was quote unquote unfault by adultery or sexual brokenness or addiction or any of those other things, how did God use that 
in your own life. Mm-hmm. And and I think those are things that you're going to want to look for and listen for in their story. Yeah. So assuming there's the green light here, how do you answer her second question of just, okay, maybe we're going to date. How do I then not constantly just compare myself to his ex? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to, um, unfortunately. I think females by and large are just cursed with comparison for the rest of their lives. I mean, you can't even scroll through social media and think, oh, I, my jeans aren't boot cut. I must not be <laughs> hip anymore. You know, it's stupid, but we we do that all the more in this intimate space, the most intimate relationship you're going to have on earth. Um, you're going to struggle with this as a matter of comparison. Two things I thought about with this. Um, one is you've got to own that that's likely your process and something you're dealing with internally. I hope that your boyfriend, future husband, whatever, isn't projecting that onto you. And it's something that's really internal. Um, And I think you've got to really spend some time really being aware of that and really being cautious of that and really even condemning, you know, those thoughts. The other thing is, I think, remembering that you're entering into a unique experience with a new partner This is going to lead to some comparisons and that not just for you as comparing yourself to his ex-wife, maybe, you know, physically, financially, emotionally, anything else, but also in the context of this new relationship, I mean, you've got to have some grace here for the boyfriend. You're going to be a completely different experience for him. And there's going to be things along the line where he's reminded of his ex and and maybe for good, it may be for bad. It may be, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're that way and not the other way, you know? Mm Um, I remember one time when my husband and I were dating, it only happened one day, but he called me his ex-wife's name three times in one day. And I'm like, what is it about the context of the environment right now where I'm completely reminding you of her? Like, we couldn't figure that out. You're going to have those moments. And I think you have to have a lot of grace for that. The beautiful thing is it's important to remember is over time that becomes obsolete, that there may be a lot of that in the beginning. You're possibly even in the same church mm-hmm. um, where he was with mm-hmm. his former wife. You know, um, he may still have friends that he had with his former wife. There's a lot of that in the beginning of, of kind of fleshing that out. And where do I fit in this whole picture? Mm-hmm. It's just important to also remember that over time, those factors become more and more obsolete. If you continue on in that relationship and get married, you will form an identity together. But there is a little bit of him pulling away from that identity as as even an ex-husband and moving into an identity of being a husband with you. And there's a lot of grace. Yeah, that's good. Good insight there. So, well, thank you so much for weighing in on that. I appreciate it. Well, folks, um, that is it for this week's show. And I don't think I have asked for this recently, so I will now. And that is to hop over uh, to your podcast platform of choice. It could be Apple Podcasts, uh, maybe Spotify or something else, and leave us a review. And so obviously at Apple, you can write out a review and it will introduce folks to the show. And maybe you can say something that you love about the show. Obviously, Spotify now has the five-star rating system, so that'll work for you as well. But we would just love to get your thoughts and your kind of thumbs up on what Boundless is doing with this show so that others can get to know it as well. So in the meantime, I will see you around next week. It's Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org from Focus on the Family. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, 
walk like him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.